Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Paul Morris, founder and chief executive of AdMaster, a global leader in the supply of technically innovative premium quality additives for the plastics, paper, textile, plant, paints, and coatings industry. Later on in the program, we'll be joined by Dr. Cedrine Gagne, managing director of AdMaster. But first, Paul, hello. Hi, Matthew. Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Uh, now, normally, uh, the show is entirely about the concept of leadership. But uh, before we get there, like all things at the moment, we have to delve into the world of COVID-19. This has been uh, cataclysmic uh, to businesses across the world. How has AdMaster fared in the past six months? I think you're right. I think it's been the biggest stresses that any business, certainly in living memory, has gone through, certainly in this generation. Um, for us, as you can imagine, a company that provides antimicrobial and antiviral products, it's affected us in a very particular way, whereby all of a sudden we had to send our staff home and only 20% stayed in the office just to keep it functioning and keep a distance, obviously. But we've um, had so much work come in. We've had a tenfold increase in terms of inquiries. And then the sampling and testing we've done, where normally we'd send off maybe 30 samples for antiviral testing uh, a month, we've been over 350. So it puts real different stresses on a business that I know this is all about leadership, but in terms of planning, you can never really plan for this. But mm. I think what it does do is it really tests and stretches an organization. And I've been able to see what great team we've got. And I think all that investment in leadership and, and team building o- over the years you only really know it's working when you have something like, like this happen. Now, how would you describe your response uh, to uh, this uh, crisis? Um, what sort of uh, measures have you put into effect in the short term, and how are they changing the way that you operate the business for the long term? I think our first reaction, if I'm totally honest, uh, it's not textbook, was just disbelief. I think disbelief that it was actually happening. And then as a senior management team, our first thought was the safety of the staff. You know, what do we have to do to keep everybody safe? Uh, We heard all the advice. And so first of all, right, we send everybody home. We make sure they're safe. But we're supplying antiviral products here. So we can't run away from the problem. We have to supply products. So we had our record at that time, record ever month in March, which is about double our normal turnover at a time when we had to send all the staff home with no preparation. So literally it was, take your laptops, go home, we'll let you know what's going to happen. And um, so everybody had a crash course in how to Zoom and team calls, as I think a lot of businesses found. And um, but once they were at home, I think as a management team, we felt relaxed and we thought we could look at the business and go, right, what needs to be done? And it, it was tremendously tough. It is really tough. And in that position of responsibility, I mean, as the... As the CEO of this business, I was actually doing part-time hours, and I have done for the last couple of years, but it literally was right. I've got to jump back in. So literally, I've done um, five, six days a week since March just to make sure that uh, the rest of the team and all were working well. What we were trying to do was working well, and everybody felt safe and secure. Now, do you feel that this is going to fundamentally change the way that businesses across the board operate for decades to come? I think it will. I think that everybody, any 
talk and that you're hearing that people have realised that working from home isn't that bad. I do think uh, over the years I've found that certain individuals find it easy to work from home and work better, or the ones will be the first to admit that that motivation uh, is sometimes difficult to get at home and there's loads of distractions. Uh, we were fortunate in A, that we've got a great team, and B, there was so much work to do, we couldn't be distracted. But I, I do think that speaking to people, you know, the, the thought of um, jumping on a train as I was to London a couple of times a week or um, Sandrine flying around the world to visit our various global partners is just something that we can't see coming back um, to normal for quite a while now. So it's definitely changed that. And I do wonder whether, um, you know, things like HS2, for instance, you know, we're, we're based up in Staffordshire and that's all this money is supposed to be spent that I can get to London eight minutes quicker. I do wonder about the viability and the sensibility of things like that because, you know, the only strains that we've seen and I can see in the future is making sure that wherever we're based, we've got good broadband speed. And if we've got good broadband speed, mm. we can do everything we need to do. Well, that certainly is an interesting point and one uh, that needs to be reviewed. Um, I know we've spent the past five minutes discussing the COVID situation, and now I'm going to ask you to completely forget that it ever happened uh, because I, I don't want to skew our data for the next question. Um, I'd like you to look back over the past decade, back to 2010 and the intervening years between now and then. How has the workplace changed physically and culturally over that time, and where do you think the workplace will be in 2030? Wow, that's a difficult one without trying to factor COVID in. I think that um, we've definitely seen, let's, let's call it a modernization of the workplace in that we can work leaner, um, that we probably need less people. Certainly from our business and our model, which evolved in 2000 and probably accelerated in 2010, we outsource as much as we can. So, you know, we'll outsource SEO, we'll outsource website building, we'll outsource our deliveries, our manufacturing. So I think that that's a trend that will continue as people realize that the communication, as long as the communication is right and the ground rules are right, quite often having um, external supplies is the way to go. Because um, certainly if you look now, again, try not to delve into what's just happened, but in any business you can switch a tap on and you can switch a tap off. And I think that's quite good um, that you have that. And you know, the, some of the biggest companies in the world, Apple, you know, they outsource the manufacturing of their phones for that very reason, is it allows that scale up. Um, it's not how quick you can build a new factory. It's can you, how quickly you can approve a new supplier. So I think in the last 10 years, that's what I've seen is that um, I know when we first started in 2000, um, a lot of people thought we were mad in our industry. No one had ever outsourced manufacturing before. It was seen as a very high cost center you couldn't possibly afford to do it i remember quite comically i used to get phone calls and i thought people were wishing me all the best and what they were actually doing is saying well when this fails in six months four would you like a job and i was like well no it's not going to fail it's going to work but we had we we went against the grain but i think now that grain is people are realizing that outsourcing has tremendous benefits as long as you've got the right partners as long as you work together closely as a partnership and it is a two-way partnership then I think that's probably the biggest thing I've seen in that 10-year period, and I would think to continue in the next 10 years. Do you believe that COVID will have any impact on outsourcing? We've seen uh, quite a lot of calls for repatriation of uh, manufacturing. 
due to supply shortages at the beginning of uh, this pandemic. Uh, do you see this as having any effect? Um, I, I do and I don't. I don't think the, the health side of COVID will have any difference. Um, I do feel, though, that it's made people stop and realize that it isn't all about trying to save the last cent of, of an order or the last percentage in that it's all about making sure things arrive on time and people have seen value. So if you look at what people are spending, you, know, you look at the supermarkets, they haven't had to um, do as many deals because people are just going to the supermarket and saying, right, that's what I want. I'm coming in. I'm not wasting my time. And I think I just want to get the goods and go. So I think that whole realization of it isn't just about is, is a bunch of bananas 57p or is it 60p and people are going to go to different markets to pay that. I think that people have seen now that the availability, as long as the availability is right. Um, I mean, I'm probably a strange person to ask for this. We've won the Queen's Award um, three times, twice for export, and we make everything in the UK. So I've never made anything abroad, even though we uh, export around 70%. And that hasn't been through any jingoistic reason to only be British. I just know for my business it is better to have my suppliers closer so I haven't got that massive lead time mm. and that I can go and see them, that I can have a, a, a conversation with them in real time. Um, but my customers are at export. So even though I want my suppliers closely, most of my customers, I am uh, an import for them. So we have to make sure that it's very easy for them to deal with us. So there's two sides of it. We probably go, we're probably the flip of what everybody else sees. So we haven't changed at all. We, we've always been UK manufacturing and we still are. And so I guess really I probably wouldn't have seen the strains of bringing in products from abroad. But I think also if you were buying something in and you couldn't supply in the last few months, everybody realized what it was. It wasn't you were a poor business. There was just some things happening that no one could control. Of course. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership uh, briefly. Uh, I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, I think to me, if you, I think the word respect, but when I have an image, for some reason, I always see a leader with a flag. Not, not a country flag, but some way it's showing people where to go. He, you know, you, for me, if I, any of the role models I've had over the years, there's always been a high degree of respect for what they've done and admiration, and then I've wanted to follow them. So it's someone that you respect and you want to follow, and you trust in their judgment. And I think you trust in their judgment of you that um, any decision they make isn't going to be a selfish one. They're going to do it for the team or or for you so I'm very fortunate I've had some great mentors over the year over the years and I keep in touch with them and um, I still try and help as many people as starting out in, in businesses as possible because I think giving someone a glimpse of what leadership can look like um, has a massive impact on people's careers how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style um, day-to-day I would say leading from the front um, I've recently cleaned out a whole, an old house and found an old article I did, and it talked about um, what drives me in business. And I've always said that um, I'm probably not the best CEO in the world. I'm definitely not. I'm not the best managing director in the world or the sales director. 
but I challenge any of them to work harder than me, and to put more effort in and to have more passion. So I think my day-to-day is I lead from the front, I show energy, I'm very passionate about what we do, and I think that makes up for maybe me not being as skilled in some other areas. And I think I try and encourage my team, they're never going to be perfect, but if you work hard enough something with passion, you will achieve everything you want to achieve. Well, Paul, I think you've done that in spades. I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. Please do join us again soon. Now we're joined by Dr. Sandrine Gagne, Managing Director of AdMaster. Sandrine, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you uh, very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, Now, as you know, uh, Paul and I have already discussed the ongoing COVID outbreak. Do you have anything uh, to add uh, to that conversation as to an operational uh, perspective? It it has been a very busy time for us. Um, We are fortunate to be in a business which was in high demand during this crisis. So for us, COVID um, has been really beneficial to the growth of the business. Well, that is the thing. With uh, cataclysmic events, there's always going to be uh, losers and winners. And when a business can help people and be a winner at the same time, well, that certainly is uh, a treasure to behold. Um now, of course, uh, we're here to discuss the concept of leadership. Uh, you know that I've already asked Paul, uh, what does the word leader mean to him? I'd like to know what the word leader means to you. A leader to me is someone you look up to, that you follow by example. Um, a leader doesn't have to impose discipline. A leader simply has to show the example and lead um, the others to follow in his or her footsteps. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? We, we have a relatively small team here. Um, for me, it's very important that each individual has clarity on their job, on their task, and doesn't require um, hands-on managing. As long as the job gets done, how they do the job, and in which format they go about delivering I don't really mind so I'm, I'm not checking mm. over their shoulder on a daily basis for me it's about giving the freedom for them to express themselves how they want to do the job as long as of course as the job gets done so it's allowing them to kind of self-develop in a laissez-faire yet supervised manner yes yes now, where would you say you developed your leadership style from? Did you have any particular role models, or have you been shaped more by circumstance? It's something that continues to evolve and develop. I don't think it ever stops. You learn from your experience. You learn from working with other people. I look back at some of the people who managed me when I was earlier on in my career, and I've learned from them. I've learned also from um, courses I have gone to, for example, recently, and there has been a course through the local university at Hill, um, which was Leadership in Innovation, and it was a six-month course with two days each month at the university with a group of uh, entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs. And again, it was about 
learning from the people delivering the course, but also learning from each other as leaders of small and medium-sized businesses in the region. Now, of course, every business has uh, its time of conflict within it. And as a leader within that business, you have to deal with that. Do you have a particular method of how you resolve conflict? Um, never answer in the heat of the moment. Always take a step back, sleep on it, <laughs> and the next day I look at the problem or the conflict with a fresher mind. Um, Personally, um, I'm a runner and going for a run after a day's work is when I solve the difficult problem, the difficult conflict. It's, it's my space, my time for clearing out whatever is in my head. Um, responding to a conflict immediately, uh, the emotions are coming through, whereas taking a step back is more the logical that will take over. So you'd say it's very important for leaders and uh, workers to have something outside of work, some sort of hobby that they can use to clear their mind that makes them more efficient at their jobs? Absolutely. Um, it is not possible to run at full speed and give 120% of yourself for 12 hours nonstop. You, you need an, an outlet, um, be it sports, be it music drawing, looking after your family, cooking, any hobby providing that you have that breathing space where your brain is, is, is not concentrated solely on the business. And you will find that actually it's during those moments outside the business and not in front of, of your computer or in front of a Zoom call, team call, that bright idea coming to you because you are allowing your brain to start to relax and that's when the best moment and the best idea have come to myself. Do you feel that there's not enough emphasis placed on uh, mental relaxation uh, in UK working culture? No, I, I think UK's working culture um, does, does allow. Um, it's sometimes difficult for each person to take a step out um, we in the UK you have flexi hours you have a lot especially now in this current climate it's very well accepted to work from home so working from a different place also gives you that that change of scenery that that enables innovation enables different ways of thinking I, I don't think it is a problem mm. in the UK I think it's it's about us actually making the time to do it now, Sandrine, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Admaster? It's a very exciting time. We have some great projects in the pipeline. We're also recruiting um, to enlarge the team to, to be able to meet the demand for, for more technical support, more marketing support. So I, I, I see the next 12 months as really a, a great chance to grow the business with maybe a little bit of concern around Brexit time. How will that impact in terms of moving goods? We have a business which is 70% export. So some goods will have to cross the borders. I'm hoping that there's not going to be too many delays um, during the implement, implementation of, of Brexit. But that's the only 
a worry I have for the next 12 months. It, it's really going to be a positive next 12 months. Well, Sandrine, it's been a pleasure to have you and Paul on the program today. I want you both to come back on the show at some point soon. But for now, thank you both very much. Thank you. That was Paul Morris and Dr. Sandrine Gagne of AdMaster. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that 
Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. 
I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.